I love history, and uh, one of my favorite historians is Doris Kearns Goodwin. If you've ever read any of her works, you know that she's an excellent writer and, and has the pulse, uh, her finger on the pulse of, of what is uh, considered some of the great events that have happened in the past. And I think one of her best books, if not her best book, is a book she wrote about Abraham Lincoln called The Team of Rivals. And it's a story of Abraham Lincoln primarily surrounding his uh, election as president in, in 1860 and his cabinet, uh, most of whom, interestingly enough, were, were his political foes during the, the nomination process and, and uh, his, his election. But he put together this, this group of people and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwood does a beautiful job of, of talking about his leadership and about his approach to, to handling all the, all the drama and the stress and the trauma of, of the Civil War. Toward the end of the book, uh, she chronicles what happened to Abraham Lincoln uh, in, on April 4th, 1865. The city of Richmond, Virginia had just fallen the day before. Uh, Lincoln got word uh, the evening before that date that uh, Richmond was now in the hands of, of the Union forces. And uh, because he was positioned in, in the front lines of the uh, the Union Army at that time, he, he said to his, his aides and, and, and the people around him, he says, I want to go to Richmond. And they tried to talk him out of it. It was still pretty dangerous. Uh, they didn't know if there would be hostile forces still hiding there, uh, but he insisted that he go. And, and so they, he got on a, a, a barge uh, on the James River and they, they went upriver toward Richmond. Uh, there was all sorts of, uh, of uh, battle uh, weary people that, that were around all sorts of wreckage in the river. There were, there were torpedoes, that what they considered torpedoes of that day, just sticking up out of the river. They navigated through that. And finally, he got to the shore of Richmond and, and uh, he got out and he began to walk the streets. Richmond was completely deserted. There was no one in the streets. Uh, it had been pretty much evacuated. The people that were still there were holed up in their, their houses. They didn't know how they would be treated. But uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin said, uh, there was also some people who noticed him. And who noti the people who noticed him uh, were some freed uh, uh, African-American slaves. And they began to, to point out that here was Abraham Lincoln. So he arrived in Richmond, and he began to be surrounded by a small group, she, she says, of, of black laborers. And they began to say things. They began to say, th say things like, bless the Lord. And there's the great Messiah pointing at him. Glory, hallelujah. And they began in reverence to kneel in front of him. And, and she writes, as, as Lincoln walked into Richmond, the streets which had been utterly deserted became suddenly alive with crowds of black people tumbling and shouting from over the hills and from the waterside. It was a triumphal entry. We are at Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is, is a, a day that we commemorate uh, in the Christian calendar. This is the sixth Sunday of Lent. And those of you who have uh, uh, gone through uh, Lent and, and had some uh, personal disciplines and, and, and commitments that you've made, thank you for doing that. This is, this is the last Sunday uh, before Easter. This Sunday, uh, in the time of Jesus, Surround, the events that surrounded it, Jesus a few days earlier had healed Lazarus. In fact, not just healed him. He had raised Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus was dead. 
And he lived with his sisters in the village of Bethany. He'd been dead for four days. Jesus comes. Martha comes out to him and, and, and uh, says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary, the other sister, comes out and, and, and weeps. Jesus weeps. Then he stands before the, the grave of Lazarus and calls him out. Four days in the tomb and Lazarus comes out and Jesus states those wonderful words, uh, take off his grave clothes and let him go. And people were talking. They were talking. This is a man who just didn't heal people, as wonderful as that was. This is a, this is a man who could raise people from the dead. And the word was out. Jesus spent a few days in Bethany, but then he decided that he would uh, go into Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to look on your bulletins, the text is there. We're going to uh, read Luke chapter 19, uh, beginning with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he'd just given a parable, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Then I'm going to read the last three verses. The next three verses. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of God. There's anticipation in the air. Hints of things to come. There's also danger in the air, warnings of disaster. My wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel last May, and uh, we were at the, the site of the, of the Mount of Olives. I've got a picture of, of the uh, uh, garden. This is the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And, and you can just see this, this tree on the left-hand side. There are several trees in this garden just like this. They claim that the, these trees are centuries old. And uh, this, is, this is the area where Jesus had to pass through. And, and when, you, when you look out from this garden, the next picture, you'll, you'll, you'll see this panorama. This, this garden looks out over that, that depressed area is the Kidron Valley. And uh, that, uh, that wall there that you see in the middle that, that runs the, the width of the picture, that's the wall of Jerusalem. Of course, the Golden Dome is the Temple Mount. That's the mosque that now, now occupies the place where, where the temple was. But Jesus 
uh, and you can't see it really well in this picture, but there's a, there's a bricked up uh, arch, a, a gate it's called the Golden Gate, and Jesus went through that wall at that gate and into Jerusalem. And this, this road was lined with, with hundreds, if not thousands of people who, who were cheering and shouting, Hosanna, uh, uh, glory to God, here's our king, as Jesus rode this colt down this hill into the valley and up into Jerusalem. It's a great day. What are the great days of your life? Think back. What are the days, what are the days that stand out? What are the days that, that are special? We all have those. I, I remember the day that my son was born, uh, my oldest child. That, that's a day I'll never forget. Uh, the day my daughter was born, we barely made it to the hospital on time. That's a great story. I, I barely remember my wedding day. Um, you know, wedding days are great, but uh, you just sort of go through the motions. You sort of go what they, <clears throat> where they tell you to go and say what they tell you to say, and pretty soon you're married, you know? It was just, it was wild. <laughs> I remember <clears throat> the day that I <clears throat> stood in um, with 450 other men. John Eldridge has a boot camp, Wild at Heart boot camp in Colorado. I remember singing songs of praise a cappella with these men. And I remember thinking, wow, this is just maybe a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. I remember the day of my ordination and uh, uh, the joy that I had in the celebration of that. Those are special days. This was a special day. This was, in a sense, one of the, one of the culminations of Jesus' ministry here on earth. This is a day when people proclaimed out loud their love and their thankfulness for who he was and what he was doing. So why Palm Sunday? Why did Jesus even do this? Why, why, why did Jesus go through these steps of, of, of getting this cult and going into Jerusalem? I think it's a wonderful day, but it's also a sad day simultaneously. As, as, as we see in that text when Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, I think you're going to miss it. I think you're missing, really, the essence of the coming of the king. So I see three things in this passage, three things that, that uh, stand out to me about Palm Sunday and what it was like. It's called Palm Sunday because other, other synoptic texts tell us that, that uh, many of the people, as they shouted praise to Jesus, they put palms in the, uh, in, in the road and, and where he was going. And that was a symbol of of liberation. It was a symbol of nationalism for the, for the people of Israel. Uh, as, as the people of Israel would rebel against the, the tyranny of Rome, they would take Roman coins with, with the imprint of, of, of Caesar's face on it, and they would, they would put a palm uh, branch imprint over it as, as a symbol that they were defying that, that, uh, that leadership and that rule. Uh, the, the, the palm uh, the, the Latin term for the palm was, was Phoenix delectivus. The phoenix being that mythical bird that rises out of the ashes. And, and, and the palm tree was one of, the, one of the few plants that when it's burned can still grow. It still produces leaves. And, and the palms were a symbol of, of, of the, the revival and, and, and the renewed life that they, they wanted to have in Jerusalem. Jesus rode in on a donkey, a very young donkey, a one-year colt, uh, an animal that, that probably uh, two weeks before couldn't have even carried the load of a man, but, but was probably able to do that. 
This was Passover. Jesus was going in to, to celebrate the, the Feast of Passover, one of the high holy days in, in, in the Jewish faith. And, and it's interesting, the, there were rules that surrounded how you could work and how you not could, could not work uh, during the Passover. And uh, there were three, three camps. Uh, one says you couldn't even move the, the Passover bread uh, anywhere but in your own house. The second group of people said you could move the Passover bread as long as it was in your uh, immediate neighborhood. But the third group said you could move Passover bread throughout the city if you didn't carry it and used a beast of burden, you used a donkey. And Jesus comes in on this donkey, and it's a symbol of, many scholars believe, him proclaiming, I'm the bread of life. I'm the Passover bread. Palm Sunday was intentional, first of all. It was intentional. Jesus knew the prophets. He knew Zechariah, and uh, he knew the prophet Zechariah centuries before had prophesied this. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's prophesied, prophesied in, in, by Zechariah. This Jesus intentionally had them go look for this cult because he knew that prophecy and this was the time when it was going to be fulfilled. Didn't come on a mighty horse. Of course, Roman times, conquerors came on, 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 on white horses, great stallions, and they would ride through the city in, in victory. And this also was, was a, a tradition in, in, in Israel as well. Solomon, uh, when he was being put up as, as the next king by his father David, uh, David had his, his leaders put Solomon on a mule and ride into Jerusalem, and he was, he was given praise as he rode in Jerusalem. That was, that was their way of saying that this, this is your coming king. But Jesus does it on this relatively small animal. I was reminded of Jesus in, in Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he says these words. It's so interesting to me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus was the only one who could get away with uh, claiming he was humble. You want to claim it? You've lost it already, right? My book, Humility and How I Attained It, is, is self-contradictory, right? Jesus was the one who, who claimed, hey, follow me. There's a humility in following me. Remember, I was just starting out in ministry. I, I did campus ministry. We were at a conference. We were at a hotel. It was late one night. My, my wife and my young son, he was about a year old, was there. And, and uh, we'd put him to bed. My wife had, had a meeting, and I had the, the responsibility of making sure he was going to be okay. And uh, I wanted to do some reading. So I sat outside our hotel door in the hallway of that, that hotel, uh, listening for my son so I could do some reading. And the speaker at our conference was a guy really 
really respected. His name is Sweet Anderson. And I remember uh, uh, I looked up and here Sweet Anderson was coming down the, the uh, hallway to his room. I'm going, oh boy, here I am sitting in a, in a hotel hallway. That's, that's not the most uh, great, greatest place to be. He's going to wonder why I'm here. He got close to me, recognized me. Here's what Sweet Anderson did. This guy I really respected. He stopped and got down and sat down in that, hall, in that hallway with me and talked with me. I'll never forget that. Asked how I was, asked how I was doing. And I thought about the humility that it took to do that and the interest that it had. Here's the question that comes to my mind as I think of Jesus' humility on that day. How intentional are you, how intentional am I, about my humility? How intentional are you about your humility? Because this is what Jesus calls us to as believers. Is that something that, that I grab onto? Humility simply is considering others before yourself. And now I have a hard time sometimes of doing that. Jesus came in this wonderful day, but he came in humility. The day was intentional. The day was inspirational, too. There was a lot of cheering, a lot of, a lot of ruckus, a lot of noise. Jesus came into Jerusalem this day as a king. That's what they said in this text. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were exalting him. Now, did all that crowd have this perfect knowledge of who Jesus was and, and what he was doing? And, and did they all have the same intentions in terms of what he was going to do? I don't think so. I think there were varied views of Jesus. People were excited he was there. Many of those people felt that maybe he was the one who was going to free them in the next few days, weeks, and months from the Roman rule, that he was going to lead them into a whole new, new uh, way of, uh, of governing and thinking and living. I think other people maybe saw it in more of a spiritual sense. I don't know. But there, there are people who were just glad that he was there. And he allowed himself to receive praise. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he told many, if not most, of the people that he healed, hey, don't don't, uh, don't share this with anyone in terms of who did this. But now, this day, Jesus allows himself to be proclaimed as who, who he truly is. He finally received the praise that was due him. They finally saw him as king. The best novel, I think, ever written is uh, Les Miserables. You can just take it to the bank. It is. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Not the movie. And not the musical, but the book. And if you really want a good six-month experience, get the unabridged copy of Les Mis and just go through it. It's, there, it's a lot of words, but it is a wonderful, wonderful book. Most of you know the story Jean Valjean, a, a convict despised by his culture, is, is brought to faith through the, through the loving acts of a bishop and uh, lives out his faith through the, through the rest of that book. He does some wonderful things. He lives a life of, of, of self-sacrifice. The frustrating thing about that book is you think, oh, Jean Valjean, what a, what a great guy. But the, the person that he cared for most, his adopted daughter, Gazette, she never really understood what he did for her until the last two weeks of Jean Valjean's life. She pretty much held him at arm's length even after the, the, the foiled uh, revolution. She's married now to, to, to this man that she loves, but she didn't really have too much to do with him because he, he was sullied because of his reputation. And then she began to understand, oh, this is what he's done. And for the, la for the last two weeks of Jean Valjean's, and you're reading that and you go, oh, 
two, two things. It's sad and frustrating at the same time. Or it's, 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 it's glad and, and frustrating at the same time. I'm glad he's finally recognized. But it's frustrating it took so long. And so short. And there is this sense about Palm Sunday because we know historically what is coming. Jesus receives this praise. And I have to ask the question in terms of these people receiving Jesus, do I live my life with Jesus as my king? Am I reminded of that? And do I live that, my life that way? I have a hard time sometimes. I have to confess to you remembering who's king. I have a hard time remembering that, that God is the one that I need to, to pay attention to and be obedient to, not, not my own wishes and desires. Palm Sunday is intentional, it's inspirational, but the last thing that I see in here, Palm Sunday is infuriating. Not in this awful way, but it's just so confusing. The prophet Isaiah sums it up in his prophecy of, of Messiah in Psalm 53, talking about the coming Messiah, Jesus himself. Isaiah writes, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one who, from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Jesus was not just accepted and cheered on by, by his disciples, but he was simultaneously despised by the Pharisees, the chief priests, the leaders, spiritual leaders of Israel. He was rejected because of who he claimed to be. He was so hated that they conspired to have him put to death. And you get hints of this as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the, and the Pharisees are running around saying, hey, you've got to stop these people. You've got to stop them from, from claiming. And Jesus says, if they don't do it, the stones would cry out. This is my day. This is my proclamation. I was talking recently with someone I was counseling and, and um, she was going through some history of, of recent events in her life and she, she looked at me and she said, you know, I, you know, I was raised in, in the church, but I really don't know what to do with this whole Christianity thing. I, I, I don't know. And, and she began to share how uh, people that she knew that, that had faith many times disappointed her. She didn't care for their views. She didn't care sometimes for their life decisions, and they weren't always consistent in terms of the things they claimed they believed. And I, and I said, yeah, I, I, I understand, and I, I can see that, and, and um, I can understand your perplexity and, and struggling with that. I said, if it's any consolation, I disappoint myself all the time in terms of my own life. And I'm sure you might be able to identify with that. But I said, here's, here's the thing. If you're going to think about Christianity or you're going to think about your faith, here's the question you need to ask. And this is the question that all of us need to ask perpetually. I need to ask it. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Forget all the, all the trappings, all, all, all the other people. There's only one person that you need to pay attention to. That's what Palm Sunday is. Jesus coming into this city saying, hey, what are you going to do with me? What will you do with me? You want to cheer me on? 
or will you conspire to put me to death? Interesting, when the Apostle Paul was Saul and when he was a Pharisee himself and when he, before he came to faith in Christ and he was on the road to Damascus, he was struck down by a great light and a voice from heaven saying, Jesus himself, remember what Jesus said? He asked the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Doesn't ask why you're persecuting the church. Doesn't ask why he doesn't have, ha have a certain faith. It's all about who Jesus is. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to state to the world who he really was. He's, he is the King of Kings. It was a welcome message to some, and it was a despised message to others. But there wasn't any middle ground. You couldn't just, you couldn't play both ends against the middle. C.S. Lewis, we quote this all the time. I, I, I don't think we can quote it enough. I love this quote. I read it as a young believer, and it, it radically shifted my view of who Christ was. C.S. Lewis says, you can shut Jesus up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him for being a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus makes a statement on Palm Sunday. Here I am. Here I am. I'm your king. Will you accept me as that? Of course, this begins Holy Week. We know the story. We will celebrate that this coming week. We know that Jesus humbly and uh, with great intention laid down his life for you and me and all mankind. Uh, Zach talks all the time about his mentor, Steve Brown. If you know Steve Brown, he, you know he's a good guy. Uh, Steve Brown's not my mentor. He's, he's in my demographic. I don't have mentors at my age, I guess. But he's a good friend, and he says some great things. And I remember hearing Steve Brown speak at a, at a conference years ago. I think it was in the 80s. I came actually down to Orlando and uh, heard him speak, and he talked about his dog, Lazarus. I'll never forget this story. He had a dog, Lazarus, and, and he was due for some, some uh, medical attention. He took him to a veterinarian. Veterinarian said, I got to give him a couple shots. And he had him his dog up on the table, and Steve's there, and, and he says to the doc, he says, look, he says, my dog's a little quirky, you gotta be careful. And the veterinarian says, don't worry, and he just plunges this needle into the dog's leg and gives him the shot, and, and he says, Lazarus just sort of turned his head and looked around at him, and that didn't do anything. The veterinarian said, see, and he goes, be careful. The veterinarian gets the second shot ready, plunges it in the other leg, and he says, my dog turned around and clamped his teeth on his arm. He said, you can do it once to my dog, but you can't do it twice to my dog, not to Lazarus. Apostle John gives a prophecy in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19. Verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful. And true, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written. Here's the name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes again, he won't be riding a small donkey. He'll be on a white horse. And he will come in victory, and he will come to rule the nations. Abraham Lincoln made a triumphal entry into Richmond on that April 4th, 1865. He was praised and honored by some, and he was but he was despised and rejected by others. And tragically, interestingly, but tragically, 10 days later, as you know, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by a man who sought to reverse the tide of history. The man who freed the slaves was murdered in cold blood. On that day in April 4th, when the, the initial slaves began to kneel before him, the freed slaves, when he first landed in Richmond, he said with his voice full of emotion, he said, don't kneel to me. That's not right. You must kneel to God only and thank him for the liberty you will hereafter enjoy. Doris Kearns Goodwin says, the men stood up, they joined hands, and they began to sing a hymn. Lincoln pointed the way to the man who is our salvation, our emancipator, who was cruelly put to death on a cross. And our eternal enemy thought he had reversed the tide of history. And that was Friday. Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. And thank you for his life, for his intentionality, and for the inspiration that he is to me and to us and to all who follow him as Lord. And I ask that we this evening would hear from you. And I ask for myself and for each of my brothers and sisters here, that we would understand what true humility is. We would understand that you indeed are our king and we should treat you as such. And Lord, uh, I pray that we would always ask the question, what do we do with you? And will we allow you to rule our lives? Lord, I pray if anyone is here that doesn't know you or is not sure that they know you, I pray that you would reveal yourself through your Son in all his glory, majesty, humility, and love. It's in his name we pray. Amen.